Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. Every season, the Handel and Haydn Society presents nine or ten subscription sets of concerts. In addition, our singers and players perform various non-subscription programs in different locations. These may be universities, churches, and other music series, both in and around Boston, as well as on tour, as far as California and abroad. The music you're hearing, Bach's Brandenburg Concerto No. 2, is music we know very well. For the past several seasons, we have performed it and the other five Brandenburgs as guests of the concert series at Boston's Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, as well as on our own subscription series. This recording is of a concert given in neither of these, but at the Iglesia de la Regina Angelorum, the second oldest church in the Americas, located in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. We were presented there by Conciertos de la Villa de Santo Domingo, an educational and arts presenting organization aiming to utilize the arts to revitalize the colonial city within Santo Domingo. These performances were directed by Ian Watson. Watson's long and varied career has seen him direct and perform with some of Europe's most illustrious ensembles, such as the London Symphony Orchestra, Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, both English and Scottish chamber orchestras, English Baroque soloists, and opera houses in England, France, Scandinavia, and Germany, where he was principal conductor of the Darmstadt State Opera. 
The list is too long to include here in its entirety. You will have to visit our webpage for Ian's complete biography and set aside an afternoon when you do. Suffice it to say, shortly after settling in the United States, Ian joined the Handel and Haydn Society as its principal keyboardist and shortly after as associate conductor. It's a pleasure to have you on, Ian. Welcome. Thank you very much, Guy. So all these accolades, of course, pale in comparison to your greatest achievement, which is sharing the continual duties at H and H with me. Well, <laughs> you caught me on the hop there. Yeah. Now that, that goes without saying, of course, but unfortunately, you did say it. <laughs> So we're talking about our tour to the Dominican Republic today. Uh, you've toured quite a bit in a career that began when you were 19, so that's about 68 years ago. Uh, a little more, but um, let's keep, keep the round figures. Okay. Where are some of the places you've been? Where, where have you toured and with whom did you tour? Well, I was fortunate uh, to be in the right place at the right time, I suppose. I joined the Academy of Samas in the Fields in my 20s. And they were basically a touring and recording orchestra and did a lot of recordings for Philips, which was a big recording company at the time. And they sponsored a lot of tours in Europe. So basically, we were given a schedule about half an inch thick, which covered the, the following six months. And that really took us all over the place. And I'd never really been abroad in any capacity at all. I think I'd one vacation in France as a kid. But professionally, I'd never really been out of the country at all. So it was an amazing experience to really visit pretty much every country in Europe a number of times. Although in some cases, that's a mixed blessing. I don't know whether you can imagine what a two-week tour of Holland is like. Um, but uh, it's very flat there. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, that's what we did. And Philips, of course, was a Dutch company, so they sponsored those sort of tours. And there was a lot of Germany and Belgium and, and uh, Spain and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, also further afield, Australia, I never went to New Zealand, but the Far East, uh, Scandinavia, really all over. Mostly my, my touring activities was with them at that time, at least. And that went on for quite a few years. Sounds amazing. Sounds, I mean, and difficult, difficult. It's, it's, you know, you're living out of a suitcase. Living out of a suitcase, and also, really, it was at one concert a night with one day off per week. So we'd arrive, often a three, four-hour bus ride or train ride or sometimes a plane, and then you would arrive early afternoon and have lunch and then go down to the hall, basically, at 5, 5.30 and, and do a sound check and then give the concert. And then, you know, same again the next day. So it sounds glamorous, but actually it's kind. Mm. You really, unfortunately, they tend to see very much of some of the wonderful places which one visits. But you do see some nice concert halls, of course. So that's a, that's yeah. a benefit. I find it fascinating that the way you and I get in a car and drive down to southern Connecticut, for instance, to give a concert yeah. in Europe, you're driving to France or Spain. or Well, sure, you know, and especially with the tunnel connecting the UK to, to Europe. We'd often do day trips to Paris. I did that many times. Actually with Harry, Harry Christopher from the 16, we would go over to various places in Belgium and, and France uh, on the train. It was kind of almost a day trip. Had you ever been to the Caribbean? I had never been to the Caribbean until we visited this year. Really an amazing experience. What has been the most exotic location you would say you've performed? 
I would say the most exotic location is probably Taipei, which I think is the capital of Taiwan. It was it was certainly an unusual venue for a classical concert. I remember it well. It was, we did a concert of Israel Egypt with John Elliott Gardner at, I think it's called the National Concert Hall in Taipei. It's an absolutely gorgeous building. And inside, we discovered a huge German organ, I think it's the Kleist, and a beautiful German harpsichord, which is something you really wouldn't expect to find that far away. The concert hall itself was gorgeous. The surrounding area is gorgeous. But I do remember walking around and maybe seven or 800 yards away, and there was a, a local market where they were chopping up and frying snakes. Okay. <laughs> a sort of snack bar, you know, that was pretty odd. The juxtaposition of, a, you know, this wonderful state-of-the-art concert hall. And just down the road, there's a market doing that. So that was a, an exotic venue, I would say. Well, now, you can't mention that and not answer everybody's question, which is, did you eat some snake? No. No. <laughs> okay. No. No, and in fact... Do you remember? We went down to Sanibel Island fairly recently, too. That's correct. In Florida, that's right. And a couple of people tried the fried gator, which is something, again, I'm afraid I wasn't very keen on. Mm. But I'm full of admiration for them. Known entities in your diet. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So... This trip to the Dominican Republic was quick, and yep. it's very much in line with the sort of touring you've described you used to do in, in Europe. We yep, ar- sure. arrived Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday we rehearsed and performed, same on Thursday, Friday we flew back. That's something that may surprise some listeners, that the folks they're seeing on stage looking formal and hopefully put together may have endured international travel that ended just a couple of mm-hmm. hours before the concert began. Yeah, in fact... I can do better than that. I remember doing a concert of all six Brandenburg concertos with a group called London Virtuosi. I think the concert was in Zaragoza in Spain. And we flew from London to Madrid, leaving at, I think it was four in the morning. It was a charter flight. And we got to Madrid and we then rented cars and we drove the several hours to Zaragoza. We then had one rehearsal in the afternoon where we rehearsed six Brandenburg concertos. We performed them in the evening. And then we left again at four o'clock in the morning, drive back to Madrid, and then back to London, where I think actually I had a recording sessions that morning at 10 o'clock. Hmm. So, so a recording session on two hours of sleep, and it was probably really good. I think it was, yeah. 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 Give it a go rise. It was yeah. amazing what elements of your training kick in when you're performing under exactly you know these these sorts of circumstances. Wow, exactly. That's very true. As you just mentioned, you've performed in some of the world's great halls here in Boston. We regularly get to perform in one of the best symphony hall. These places are prestigious, and of course, some of the places where we play are less decorous and all have challenges. What are some of the challenges you faced in Santo Domingo, and how did they impact your performance there? I I think really the heat and humidity, from my personal point of view, especially as I was tuning the harpsichord (laughs) as well, that that was really the, the biggest challenge I had. And it was the only harpsichord on the island you know, I had some slightly trepidatious. Everyone was telling me it was fine, it's fine. So there, there was a worry there. But actually, it was quite a nice instrument and very relatively stable, even in those tough atmospheric environments. 
so I would go into tune the harpsichord and there was no air conditioning in there, but they would have fans on and then they would turn them off. So it was very, very hot. And then it was, you know, to the opposite very, very quickly. So harpsichords don't react well to that. So I, I suppose that was my biggest challenge. I remember the harpsichord and I remember it fondly. And actually, this brings me to another question. Uh, the fifth Brandenburg concerto is considered by some to be the first keyboard concerto ever written. Uh, it didn't occur to anybody before Bach to give an instrument that essentially only accompanied or played music for one player to give it solo duties. But Bach, of course, did. The solo duties are shared between the harpsichord, the first violin, and the flute. But the harpsichord is given an enormous cadenza about three quarters of the way into the first movement. such an impressive moment in the music. I remember playing a concert with you in a very respectable hall where the audience erupted into applause after your cadenza, which was a moment when the rest yeah. of us were playing. It was like jazz. It's... Yeah, do you think they were happy it was over? <laughs> no, I think they were happy you played it that well. Now, you've never played this instrument in the Dominican Republic, and as you mentioned, it's the only harpsichord on the island, and that includes Haiti, right? The right. island is shared with Haiti. I suspect this is something you have to do often. You don't usually travel with your own harpsichord. So what is it like playing a very exposed, very difficult piece of music like the Fifth Brandenburg Concerto on an instrument that is completely unfamiliar to you? That's an interesting question. I mean, it has to be played one way or the other. You know, this has got to happen. So take that as read. So then what does one do? Well, I suppose throughout my career, I've had to deal with that. I started off life as an organist, and as an organist, exactly the same thing happens. That you go into a church, it's a different instrument, especially if you're going around giving a series of recitals. You obviously can't take the instrument with you. And you just have to deal with whatever you're presented with. I do remember doing a series of BBC recordings with a choir in St. Albans, Hoban in London, and the choir was at one end and the organ was at the other end. And there was probably a four or five seconds reverberation in there. And I remember playing the organ about two beats in front of what I heard. And then the pedals sounded late. So I had to play the pedals slightly in front of my hands 
and the whole thing two seconds in front of the choir, that sort of thing. When you've been faced with things like that, it becomes less perturbing to, to play different instruments, you know. It's just kind of par for the course if you're a keyboard player of that type. That's, that's just what happens. There are famous pianists who took their own instruments around with them, of course. Yeah, famously, Michelangeli, who had, I think, two or three pianos, but he, he would take his own. And if he didn't feel that the humidity or temperature or whatever was exactly right or everything wasn't absolutely perfect, he just wouldn't play. He'd just, he'd just pack his piano up and leave without giving the recital. Other players, like Sviatoslav Richter, he felt, and if I could compare myself in any way at all with Sviatoslav Richter, it would be that we both try to make the best of whatever we're presented with, because that's, that was his view, too. That he felt that it was his job to try to make whatever instrument it was in front of him sound as good as it possibly could. And I do have that sort of feeling as a sort of a natural way of being. Maybe it's sort of British wanting to make the best of it. I don't know. But um, whatever it might be, good or bad, it doesn't really faze me because it has to be played and it has to be played on that instrument. I think that's extremely admirable. Well, I get a bigger fee than you, Guy, because of that. <laughs> don't tell the people. That's, that's, that's not nice. <laughs> if I may compare myself to Sviatoslav Richter in any sort of way, is that I too have played in Carnegie Hall, albeit in an orchestra, not as a soloist, and far fewer times than he did. I played there about six times. And I remember that when I went there for the first time, I was surprised that the history of the hall didn't intimidate me. Not because it isn't illustrious, of course it is, or because I was naive or arrogant or unaware that the greatest giants of classical music had played there, but because when the lights go down, a stage is a stage and your work is the same everywhere to communicate what you believe the composer intended and to share something moving with the audience. I wonder if you feel the same way. Yes, I, I think I do, ultimately, because a lot of my work is in Europe. Uh, I've experienced maybe something slightly different. The best example I can think of would be the Bach Cantata Pilgrimage, again with Gardner, where the idea was to play the appropriate Bach cantatas on the correct day in places that Bach lived and worked. So you're already on that path of visiting, you know, historically and musically interesting places. On that tour, we played, for example, in St. George's Church in Eisenach, where Bach was baptized, may well have played in there at some point. The Bach Church in Arnstadt, where Bach was the organist. I played the organ in there, the organ that he played. It's extraordinary to breathe similar air and go into the, a building that's sort of permeated with the shadows of Bach himself. You may well be walking on flagstones that Bach himself walked on. That's an amazing experience at first. But once you get in position and the orchestra's there, the choir's there, it becomes the job that you're there to do. And your job is to, to make music to the best of your ability. And one forgets where you are, really. At least I, speaking personally, I, I do. it doesn't matter to me where I am. Although I'm sure that in some ways, those sort of buildings do have an influence on some subliminal way. But during the concert, I would say that you're just getting on with the job. And it's before and after. It's like, wow. This really is where Bach once was, and that's, that's an amazing experience. 
concert hall is just a concert hall. It has certain acoustic characteristics. It has a certain view on stage. It has a, a good cafeteria at the back or not. You know, I lucky enough, I, I had no idea what I was doing, but I, I, I just following a schedule, you know. And, and the Academy was one of the most recorded, if not the most recorded orchestra of all time. And they were very famous. And I, I was just putting flesh and bones on that and visiting these amazing concert halls, you know, the, the Berlin Philharmonie, for example, amazing concert. I think the more historic buildings certainly were you know, influential from a concertizing point of view. I wonder to what extent, you know, being British, you know, my local church in Woburn Green in Buckinghamshire is a is a 12th century church. So you, you can go in there, and, you know, which I did, uh, sang in the choir there. It's just a normal thing to do. I, I didn't mm. there say, wow, this is a 13th century church. I mean, everything over there is old. I'm thinking about this place where we performed the church of Regina Angelorum, which is apparently the second oldest church in the Americas. The first church built in the Americas is a few blocks away, built in the 15, early 1500s. This was about 40 years later. Were there any particularly memorable moments, musical or otherwise, about this trip for you? I would say the musical moments, I, I think I thought the horn playing in Brandenburg one was absolutely terrific. Uh, in fact, that's the other thing about Brandenburg Concerto is everyone has, you know, solo moments. And everyone did just just brilliantly with us. In, you know, not ideal circumstances, but we 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 made the best of it. And I think we did a fine job. Other memorable events, so I, I had some wonderful meals. <laughs> in fact, um we had some meals which began at uh, you know, seven thirty and finished at 10:30. We're getting out of the getting out of the restaurant at maybe 11 o'clock, and there were people pulling up, absolutely dressed in their finery, just going out for the evening. So it's a very different culture there to what we have here. That was interesting. Um, there also seemed to be some trenches on the sides of the roads, which I hadn't noticed. I, I remember standing outside a hotel rather late at night, chatting away, and took one step backwards and basically disappeared. Um, <laughs> So, lucky not to not to break anything there, but um, yeah, we lived yeah. the another day. Exactly. <laughs> it was it was an incredible trip, and I'm grateful to hear you speak about it because it's also bringing back uh, fond memories for myself. And I've noticed that we've spoken a lot about travel and touring and that experience in particular we've not said much about the music the brandenburg concerti themselves and i certainly would like to talk to you more in depth about those and i'm hoping that you will join me again next episode to do that absolutely i would love to fantastic so i will look forward to that thanks so much for your time thanks guy ian watson is associate conductor of the handel and haydn society <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You may find supplemental material to this episode, such as biographies, information on the Handel and Haydn Society, and links to the filmed performances of the Brandenburg Concerti in Santo Domingo on our website at handelandhaydn.org slash podcast. I hope you'll join me for the next episode. Thank you.